0: Program those expectations to make people look at you and say that's what a premier looks like you know that's what a prime minister looks like that's what a bank president looks like you do belong you have positive illusion you know make time this afternoon to uh, to rule the world
1: I look around this room and I see that I think I'm going to give a little longer introduction for the next speaker than I might otherwise do, because some of you weren't even born when she was Prime Minister, and you may not know that much about her, and I want to fill in some of those blanks. Almost two decades ago, I wrote a book called The Life, the Seductive Call of Politics, which was all about the lure of public life, and one of the chapters I wrote started with this line. Has there ever been a more dramatic story of blazing trails in public life than that of Kim Campbell? Almost two decades later, I think that line still stands up pretty well. Our first and still only female prime minister, the first prime minister from British Columbia, the first baby boomer prime minister, a meteoric rise, and of course, it all ended so soon. She always knew politics was for her. She was president of her high school student council and the first woman to be president of her freshman council at UBC. Like many candidates, she lost her first time out in the 1983 BC provincial election, but she learned a lot and three years later ran again and won. She and the leader of her social credit party, a guy by the name of Bill Vanderzam, did not get along particularly well. He told me for the book... I've met many more intelligent people than I met smart people in politics. She was the more intelligent type. Ouch. She told me what motivates him is beyond me. The guy has an extraordinary ego, but he has a following, boggles the mind. (laughs) If you're getting the impression that Kim Campbell has never minced words, yes, that's right. She calls him as she sees him. She and Van Der lasted two years together in the B.C. government. She then jumped to federal politics, won her Vancouver centre seat in Brian Mulroney's second majority government by 269 votes. Despite the close vote, she was instantly seen as a rising star. Mulroney gave her the honour of replying to the speech from the throne. That was her first ever speech in Parliament. Two months later, she was Indian Affairs and Northern Development Minister. A little over a year later, she was Minister of Justice and Attorney General. She championed a Canadian Human Rights Amendment, getting sexual orientation included on the list of prohibited grounds for discrimination, not an insignificant achievement in that Conservative caucus. Prime Minister Mulroney shifted Ms. Campbell to defence, where she was the only woman at the time ever to sit at a table of NATO defence ministers. A few months later, she found herself neck deep in a leadership race to succeed Mr. Mulroney. Because she was and is self-aware, she asked some very good questions about her leadership bid. Could she handle the loneliness that would be part and parcel of the job? Would it set women back if she won the leadership but then lost the ensuing election? Needless to say, these are not questions I have ever heard male leadership candidates ask. Twenty-six years and three months ago, Kim Campbell gave, perhaps, well, certainly for me, what was the most original leadership campaign kickoff speech I'd ever seen. In the most important political speech of her life, she spoke with no notes. She was funny. She talked about changing the way we do politics in this country. Uh, Her predecessor seemed to want a bruising four or five ballot affair, since that's what Mr. Mulrooney experienced in both 1976 and 1983, but the PC party wanted something more akin to a coronation. It may not have felt that way to you, but the fact is, that's what happened. Ms. Campbell won big on the second ballot over Jean Charest. Paul Curley, a veteran of many conservative campaigns, was in tears that night. This is for my daughter, he told Campbell that night. Well, we all know what came next. It was the fifth year of the Tories' second mandate. Not much time left to rebrand the government. A relentless pace as a minister, then leadership candidate, then prime minister, and then leading an election campaign. On election night, 25th of October 1993, Campbell's Tories won two million votes. But they were scattered too thinly. The PC party had unraveled. The Bloc Québécois became the official opposition. The Reform Party got just 2.5% more votes than the Tories, but it translated into 52 seats. The PCs got two, Campbell's wasn't one of them, and her political career was over. She told me at the time I was sad because I had enjoyed it so much. I loved it. It was the thing that I was best cut out to do. She did not let that defeat defeat her. It gave way to the next chapter of her life, teaching at Harvard University, Canada's Consul General in Los Angeles, Chair of the Council of Women World Leaders, President of the International Women's Forum, Chair of the Steering Committee of the Women's Movement for Democracy, World Movement for Democracy, on the board of the International Crisis Group, on the board of the Forum of Federations, the East-West Institute, Founding Trustee of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization and Political Violence, King's College London, Founding Member of the Club de Madrid, Founding Chair of the International Advisory Board of the Ukrainian Foundation for Effective Governance, Senior Fellow at the Gorbachev Foundation, Chair for Canada's Supreme Court Advisory Board. Kim Campbell has not let one election defeat prevent her from making a significant contribution to this world. It is an overused expression to introduce somebody as the one and only. But in her case, much to the chagrin of millions of Canadians, it is still the case she is still the one and only. Ladies and gentlemen, the 19th Prime Minister of Canada, Kim Campbell.
0: Hello. When I, uh, after I had political retirement thrust upon me, um, I had time to go back to some of my earlier interests and there was a burgeoning literature in the 1990s on, in social and cognitive psychology about cognitive biases and the way the, fact the way we think we think isn't really how we think. And it was a great revelation to me to come to understand things like implicit attitudes. So, for example, when I was running, uh, the, the, some of the problems I had were like with the Ottawa Press Gallery because I didn't look or sound like anybody who'd ever done that job before. And so, when you are not prototypical, when you are not like others who have done a job, it becomes very difficult often for people to overcome overcome their visceral sense that it's something's not quite right. So you never get the benefit of the doubt, um, because people need to reconcile that sense of discomfort they have that somebody who looks and sounds like you is doing that. And the only way to change that is to change the landscape from which people get their sense of how the world works, and that's why. When you are the first in something, whether you're the first woman or the first member of your ethnic group or the first of any kind of group that's not prototypical, there's a few human sacrifices. And when we talk about maybe why there aren't so many second chances, it's because it takes a long time to reprogram those expectations, to make people look at you and say, that's what a premier looks like. You know, that's what a prime minister looks like. That's what a bank president looks like. And so it's very important to do it. And that is why I think this gathering has been so wonderful, aside from the fact that actually you, you wouldn't, you, you know, really perhaps know this, but you know, there's like a bunch of old crony politicians getting together, that we really like and getting together and talking about what we did and sharing experiences, etc. And so it's really been a joy, and I hope we'll keep doing it, you know, over, over Scotch in some place where, <laughs> where we don't have to mix with others, but I think it really, <laughs> It really is important to, to understand that. Another thing I would say is I have a great friend who uh, is an expert in gender things, and she talks about the fact that, that men have uh, a quality that's, that psychologists call positive illusion. So, <laughs> when you ask a woman, you, could, you know, would you like to be, you know, run for politics? Oh, no, I couldn't, and, all this. and you ask a man, and he said, well, yeah, I, can, I guess I could fit it in later. Um, <laughs> they don't have that problem, so one of the things we have to learn is, how do we teach women to have positive illusion? And I think one of the ways we'll teach them to have positive illusion is we give them lots of role models and lots of things they look at that says, people who look like you do this. Because men are the default category. And it's not their fault that they have all this privilege and have been, you know, suppressing us for, you know, eons. (laughs) Just kidding, guys. But... But the point is, we need to create that, those kinds of expectations among young women. You do belong. You have positive illusion. You know, make time this afternoon to, uh, to rule the world. So the other thing I would say is if you, to be a first minister in this country, you have to be the leader of a party that can form a government. That's really the bottom line. And, when I became leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, there were some factors but that, that perhaps, you know, we were at the very end of our mandate, and our, my predecessor didn't think he could win, but I had built a good relationship with colleagues in difficult um, uh, issues. And in fact, when the Prime Minister announced he was stepping down, over half of the caucus immediately supported me. I mean, I couldn't not have run. I mean, it was, it was really great. But So the question is, how do you get to be the leader of a governing party? And I have just done a kind of a on, you know, on my fingers count because I was out of the country for a while but I think since I was Prime Minister, of the three parties that have formed governments in Canada, the Liberal Party, the, the Progressive Conservatives Conservatives and the NDP, there have been, I would, I think at least 12 and possibly 15 leadership changes, none of which has resulted in a woman being chosen as leader of the party and that's what you really want to get to. How do we get there? Well, first of all, having more women in the caucuses to be get experience, having more women in cabinets, uh, or for parties that are out of government, having more women with important uh, shadow cabinet experiences and the opportunity to build uh, those relationships. But I think it's really important to understand that that's really what it takes to be a first minister, to be a premier or a prime minister, and is to become a leader of uh, a governing party, or a party that could form a government. The media are also a very important barrier here, and this goes back again to what I was saying about implicit attitudes. I found, when I was prime minister, that the worst media for me were the Ottawa Press Gallery because they think they own politics, you know, and they would look at me and one, one reporter, actually, it was Hugh Windsor, to be a uh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm not running for anything, <laughs> and neither are my friends. Or you may have noticed a certain freedom in our expression, but anyway. But he looked at me, sort of his lip curled, and he said, you know, I've met every Prime Minister since Lester Pearson. And the obvious implication was, you know, and you don't look or sound like any of them, and I wanted to say, well, Rudy, to, to, for you. I mean, but it's that sense that, and the other thing is that if they feel they didn't make you, because I came from British Columbia, and I kind of hit the, the, the ground running. I came, nobody in Ottawa knew me. I was well-known in B.C. So, you know, who does she think she is? Well... I'm Kim Campbell, I'm Minister of Justice, and who are you? Um, I never said that but. so the the point I'm trying to say is that there are barriers. There are barriers within parties that may make it difficult for women, you know, to get elected and to get nominations or to get the the uh, experience that they need. But I think what's really important to remember when you get all this stuff about will people vote for a woman? You know, I look, I'm look i very upset about what's happening south of the border, and we could stay here all weekend, and I'll tell you all how I'm worried, but, but the one of the things that drives me crazy is apropos of the 2016 election, when people say, you know, Hillary Clinton, well, you know, she was a flawed candidate. And I say, compared to whom? <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is, she got three million more votes than Donald Trump. And before you get into the whole thing, well, yeah, she shouldn't have gone back to Wisconsin, just stop and think about this. In the United States, over 65 million Americans in 2016 either put an X or pulled a lever or punched a chad for a female candidate for president. So please don't tell me that women are not electable. She won the popular vote. But when, you know, when she lost the election, you want to sort of rewrite it, we have to justify all the mean things we said about her, and all the things we said about her emails, and all the things that we, the double standard that we apply to her. So, the way we justify this is we describe her as a flawed candidate. We are all flawed candidates, none of us is perfect. And we step in it and we make mistakes. And equality for women will come when we are forgiven at the same rate as men are. I wrote a paper when I was doing a fellowship at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard on the press and politics. I wrote a paper on the press coverage of the 93 election, and I thought, I can't be objective, so I'll look at what the press said about the coverage, because I had a whole archive. And what was interesting was the theme of the coverage was how unfair the coverage was. And reporters would say, Kim Campbell said such-and-such, and we jumped all over her. And Jean Chrétien said the same thing, and we left him alone. Gee, that Jean Chrétien sure can manipulate the media. No, he didn't. He just belonged. So he was forgiven. You might think I said that an election is not the time to talk about serious issues. I never said that. I said it wasn't the time to do federal provincial negotiations. But Jean Chrétien said, look, just let me get elected, then ask me what I'm going to do. If you belong, people forgive everything. So the key is for us to become uh, is, as forgivable. So let me just give you quickly three takeaways from our discussion uh, earlier today and what I think is important uh, from this, this gathering, aside from the, the visual pleasure of seeing women first ministers you know running in a pack, and you know <clears throat> First of all, <clears throat> women in government matter. Advances for women came from struggles, and each one of these women has an incredible history of things that she has done in government, either as a first minister or or, or as ministers before. It makes a difference. The agenda is different when women are there. So it is we are not perfectly interchangeable. It really does matter in terms of the substance of what government does. Secondly, women's rights are now under attack. We need vigilance. If you look at... um, If you, if you look at the misogynistic rhetoric, you, and when we talk about you know the, the mean things that are said and the, the death threats and the hate speech, a lot of that is, is uh, permitted or is empowered, first of all, by the anonymity of social media. You know, you get something from, from somebody who's not identified, just block them, forget it. You know, they can't identify themselves. You know, there's a lot of guys out there in social media who have very small <clears throat> hands, and um, <laughs> anyhow. So what I'm saying is that, I'm sorry, I just, it's the end of the day. Um, But the point is, you can't let those people get to you. So just, you know, use your techniques and block them. But it is important to understand that women are in many ways the canary in the mind of human rights. Because if people are starting to wanting to erode women's rights, they've got other human rights on the agenda too. In the same way, if they're going after other human rights, chances are they're coming to you. Clarence Thomas just opined in a speech, and I was just over there, but he made some comment, it was hostile to birth control. Ladies, are we prepared to go back to the birth control battles again? You know, so I'm not an alarmist about these things, but I see this stuff coming up in, the, in populism. And the underlying agenda there is always to erode the power of women. And, you know, there are great men. I always say that the advancement of women isn't women versus men. It's women and men who get it. And there are a lot of wonderful men who get it. Really get it. Working to persuade the women and men, because not all women get it, who don't get it. But when we see this rhetoric, and we all have to be vigilant about it, and thirdly, as I said before, voters will elect women if the parties will nominate them and give them a chance. The, there, there is uh, research that shows that, that once they're nominated, women are just as likely to be elected as men. They serve well. We're not perfect, but we bring a dimension. We bring the reality of life as women live it to the table. There are many, many more wonderful people who support you. And I was concerned that if we lost the election, because it didn't look all that great... Um, that it would set, set women back. And yet, I, I was out of the country for a long time, and when I came back in 2014 to create the Peter Lahey Leadership College at the U of A, and there I was in Alberta where I'd had, had, had a lot of supporters, I was really touched at how many people, A, were happy to see me, B, remembered when I was Prime Minister, I was 10 when you were Prime Minister, I was at university when you were Prime Minister, and it meant so much to me. They didn't say, and then you lost the election, and I thought my life was over. They said no. <laughs> And so I think it's really important to remember that when you take this on, you're not always going to, you know, win. And remember, in every election, more people, more candidates lose than win. So it's, you know, you're actually in the big crowd if you don't win. But that it is so important and it is so rewarding. And when you meet people and you touch them and they shake your hand or they want to hug you. It's a connectedness to your community that you otherwise wouldn't have. It matters. And at the end of the day, democracy matters. I'm going to end now because I'm going to have a final word with Steve Bacon. But thank you for coming today. You are the best.
1: That's what the leadership campaign kickoff speech was like. Mm. That's how I remember it. You got up there, you just riffed, and away you went. And people who had never seen that kind of thing before mm. were going, oh, this is different. Yeah. Did you ever imagine, at that time, that we'd go 26 years and there wouldn't be a second one of you?
0: No, and that worries me, eh? <clears throat> because I'm not going to live forever. But, no, I, and it does concern me because... I think we should have there've have been a lot of really quite wonderful women on the on the political scene.
1: I'm trying to remember the chronology here. You you won the convention in June of mm-hmm. 93 called the election September 8th, 93, elections in October. So you didn't get to bring the House back, right?
0: No, no. And there were some people who thought I should, but a lot of our, former, our, our members who were retiring didn't really want to come back. And there was this sense that, you know, I should come and have a speech from the throne. But that's a kind of beltway, inside-the-beltway conceit because I don't think the public draws a distinction between an election manifesto and a speech from the throne if you can't fulfill it. I mean, if you could stick around for a few months and pass some legislation, that's
1: different. I wonder, though, whether... <clears throat> This is the kind of stupid stuff I think about. I don't know whether you think about this, but the chance for Canadians to see a woman in the Prime Minister's chair in the House of Commons getting up to answer questions from opponents, whether that might have changed the dynamic in some way.
0: Well, you know, that's one way of looking at it, Uh, although the people who suggested that I call the House back weren't thinking of that. They were thinking of just having a speech from the throne. But there was just really no time. I mean, I I think I dropped the writ September the 8th. We were about two... And Some people thought I should have stayed around longer. I could have had another two weeks. Oh, great, two weeks. But the problem with that was we'd had a referendum the year before. And if I went beyond the anniversary of the referendum, we would have had to do a whole new enumeration. And while it probably would not have cost more to do that compared with Election Day... uh, Registration, etc. The perception would have been Kim Campbell is hanging on to power for two more weeks and it's costing us $13 million or whatever to do any number. I mean, it was just politically not possible. So I waited until the last date so we could have election day just before the anniversary of the referendum so we could still use the same voters' list. But the timing was quite tight.
1: We apparently don't have a problem electing women leaders the first time, <laughs> it's the second time that's a problem. We've gone through a million theories here today, but I wonder, is one of them, do you think, we don't like to necessarily see women wielding power. There's something about that that offends male sensibilities. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think each of our situations is unique. I mean, I think, you know, Rachel's win in Alberta was such a tribute to her skill because she won in a province that does not elect the NDP. And it was an extraordinary... And so I think, you know, I'm not sure you can... You can, you, can, you can say that, but I think it's partly also that when you're a woman leader, um, again, you don't get the benefit of the doubt so much. Your criticisms uh, are, are more, but I think you're onto something because in the summer of 93, Gallup announced at one point that I had the highest approval rating for a prime minister in 30 years. And I think people liked me when I was out there doing that stuff and I went to the G7 summit and I spoke at the UN and whatever. But once you get into election mode, you are by definition uh, controversial. Like you said about the, the report of the debate where I was considered to be more aggressive than in fact a dispassionate analysis suggested. Um, and, and I remember the Anglophones covering the French language debate. The, French, the Francophones thought my French was fine. It was the Anglophones who thought it wasn't very good. I, you know, said, she waves her arms around looking, you know, for a word. Well, that's actually how you speak French if you don't speak it very well. <laughs> anyway, but I, but I do think that is part of it. That because you do have to respond and you do have to, uh, you know, be a little bit more aggressive. It's magnified in people's perception in the same way that at meetings, people, men perceive that women talk more than they actually do because everything that you say is time stolen from them, perhaps, I don't know.
1: Did this... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. i sorry, he's me. such
0: a good guy, he can take it on.
1: <laughs> I heard this, Premier Wynne, I heard this from some of your colleagues that when you would chair cabinet meetings, men would interrupt you in a way that they never would if it were a man sitting in the Premier's mm-hmm. chair. I see you nodding your head, or maybe when you were meeting with you know, powerful executives in the business community, that kind of thing mm-hmm. happened double standard. Did that? you face those kinds of things as well?
0: Well, um, you know, I wasn't Prime Minister long enough to really test that hypothesis, unfortunately. (laughs) But I do think it is true that men will often talk over women. It's a a power thing, it's a status thing. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure I can talk over people too. But I think again, one of the things we have to do is for is for men to, you know, be more self-aware. And a lot of men try to do it. A lot of companies try to do it, uh, to, to raise that kind of awareness. But I think when you are not seen as a prototypically powerful person, then the rules are different. You could be talked over and uh, you're just judged differently. But that's not a reason not to do it. Because incrementally and just gradually, we, you know, we shift the goalposts, we shift the barriers. And, uh, and I think that, that that's where we, where we need to be. And wonderful people like Steve Pakin, who is the best interviewer in the whole of the Western world.
1: I'm not even Bill
0: Maher. Oh, you're better than Bill Maher.
1: But he's really good.
0: He's a comedian. You're a serious person. You elevate Shut us. Him. He just Thanks. entertains us. Thank no, you. he is. He's outstanding. I watch you often, and you know, and I click onto your TVO things that you send out. Rita, really, you are you are a force for good, Steve Bacon. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm going to run with that and take right. it. Well, I still can. I know you all want to join me in thanking the one and only Kim Campbell.
2: Thank you for, uh, to everyone for sticking with us today. Thank you for being a part of this important event. Uh, please stay tuned to the Canada 2020 website. There are a number of exciting uh, materials and resources that will be coming available. We also have continued content from this project that you will see, and we're thrilled to see that many other partners are getting involved. One of the things we just found, uh, Facebook has released a new Facebook safety tips for women leaders that they've made available to all of us today. So we are committed to continuing to convene discussions about this and uh, and I just want to again say thank you to each of you for being here to everyone who has played a part in making this project happen including the team at Canada 2020 our sponsors and project partners but this needs to be the final note I just want to say a huge thanks to the women on the stage here for being brave enough to speak to us through this project and at this event thank you No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yoyanos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard.